0: all right let's go ahead and get started it's good to see everybody here um congratulations you've made it to four o'clock um, how, how many of you already feel completely saturated intellectually exhausted physically okay good very good well, you came to the right breakout because we're the ones with the wine. So, like, we could either do this or we could just sit and have some drinks. Maybe, maybe we should do both. I don't know. I, I, don't, have, I don't have that kind of... power. Yes. Yes, because that is the hope for the future of the church.
1: <laughs>
0: Sitting together and drinking wine. Um, yeah, actually kind of funny. Maybe that is true. Um, My name is Matthew Hoskinson. Let me apologize for my voice. I am not sick. I do not have the rona. I am not going to make you come down with whatever I have. Um, I'm a cancer survivor and uh, had radiation years ago. It affected my vocal cords. So for the last few years, as in like seven years, I've had all kinds of vocal issues. Finally seeing a specialist who I think is going to hopefully have a solution. But I had a vocal cord injection two weeks ago. And if you're wondering what they inject in a vocal cord, essentially what I'm told is it's Botox. So my vocal cords look like they're 20, which is amazing. It's the best looking part of my body. No one can see it, unfortunately. Uh, But I thought my voice would be better by, it was two weeks ago today. Unfortunately, I'm still, my body's still acclimating to the Botox, So I could like have a fake smile on if Botox were injected elsewhere, but, um, or just kind of a permanent smile, but as it is my vocal cords um, will just <laughs> sound like this. So I do have water um, that might help, but I'm pretty much going to sound like this. So uh, I was told this week that I sound like I'm trying out for Godfather four. Um, so we, we, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. Um, I am a pastor. Um, currently, I serve as the director of the city ministry program for Redeemer City to City, which is based here in uh, New York. Uh, I'm married. My wife and I have five kids. Our oldest is a freshman, uh, finishing up a freshman year this coming week at Hope College in Western Michigan. Uh, then we have uh, a junior at LaGuardia, a sophomore just down the street here at Nest N. And then two at the Geneva School of Manhattan. So, uh, yeah, we have a crazy life. And I'm actually dressed in a suit. Some of you have never seen me in a sport coat. I I worship here at St. George's and I hardly ever wear a sport coat. But I'm going to a father-daughter dance with our fifth grader tonight. Um, So, like, from here, go home, go to the dance. So I was like, well, I'm just wearing what I got to wear because this this is dad life. Um, But it's it's great to, to be with you. Uh, and the topic that I was given is uh, hope for the church. Of course, the broad theme of the conference: hope for a weary world. Uh, I guess the topic could have been hope for a weary church. Uh, I am I coach pastors. I'm a spiritual director uh, and serve clergy in that way as well. Um, I have pastored. I pastored in the Upper West Side. That's what brought us to New York in 2010. Um, and I helped plant a covenant church in Queens. Um, I'm not ordained in the Episcopal Church, though my family is part of the community here. Um, but, um, so I, I love pastors. I love clergy. And clergy are tired. They're worn out. Um, they, they, a sabbatical is not fixing it for them. So, like I say, this talk could be hope for a weary church. Because it's not just the clergy that are tired, but um but in the congregations, everything that we've had to do to kind of keep stuff going for the last two years has just been exhausting. Um, so, I want to take a page from Aaron Zimmerman's talk last night and start in the darkness, okay? Before we get to the hope, and I thought the best way to do that at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, rather than me talking at you, uh, is to turn this into more of a conversation and less of a a talk. So this is going to be pretty interactive. I might actually have you get up and move around. Uh, We might start the Episco Disco early in here, in which case we'll definitely need the wine. Um, But let's start with this question. In your opinion, what is the biggest threat to the future of the church right now? You don't have to be polite and raise your hand. You can just talk. If it feels like too big of a question, what is one of the biggest threats? I'm sorry. I think for our church, we're going to be probably getting to another point here.
1: So, with the pandemic, people are afraid to come back to church, and they've also just gotten used to not going. Even devout church donors that were there every single Sunday, you know, regular times. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that the, the fearfulness of reentering a building and kind of the comfortability of staying online, wake up a little bit later on Sunday morning, make yourself a cup of coffee, turn on YouTube and have your church. So yeah, I heard another one over here. Apathy? Oh yes, go ahead. Yeah. Very good. So apathy. Apathy amongst church people. Apathy amongst church people. Yeah.
1: whether they want to do that and maybe they don't and maybe when they go back to church they don't feel
0: that they can say that and they don't feel like they feel like the church is expecting their dependency to show up when they are different now and that the church needs to also be different Mm. yeah that's really well said thank you i saw a hand this way yes john
1: I wonder, philosophically, it's the idea that there, there is there isn't truth. There are multiple truths. Mm-hmm. You may have your Christian truth, but I have. Mm-hmm. And on a practical level, the um, the multiplicity of distractions that happen uh, on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it be the uh, local sports team that schedules games on Sunday morning, or, you know, the intellectuals, there is a, the morning full of
0: news talk shows. So who needs to go there? Right. That's interesting. So the first three were all sort of threats from within, right? Fear of returning, apathy, and now that kind of adds that other layer of... Threats from without your truth, my truth. Plethora of options, that's internal and external. Yeah, what else? awesome. I mean, not... Yeah. Great analysis. If you're recording this, I was not awesoming people questioning the need for a risen Jesus. I just wanted to make that clear. Anything else come to mind? I don't have anything in mind. I'm just kind of curious. It's a very big, open-ended question.
2: I think maybe an uh, ability to be vulnerable... Mm. I am from Texas. Uh, I'm a Baptist. Um, and so, uh, kind of wait, confused. is there any
0: other kind of Texan?
2: That's right. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> coming, coming here is, has been awesome. Um, because you guys are big on grace. Uh, I think that's fantastic. The church I go to, in Fort Worth, is big on grace. It's, it's big on, um, hey, I'm broken, and I'm a sinner. Mm-hmm. And I need Jesus. Um, I'm more than just, hey, I put this mask on, and I'm a Christian, you know, and so just at at my core being able to be vulnerable with somebody and and share my sin Mm.
1: and find grace
2: in a community I think is is huge. Yeah,
0: that's so good. I don't know if everyone could hear that. Um, Fear of vulnerability uh, within a church community being a threat, like one of the things that makes Zoom so appealing is that I don't have to interact with anybody and yet I feel like I get everything that I would have gotten. And I'm, I'm just deluding myself. Um, if, I, if I stay there, I'm just deluding myself. But sometimes actively, it's like, I don't really want to deal with people today. I'm not even sure I want to deal with Jake, who's the rector here. And, you know, it's a, I'll turn him off. There, I don't like his the sermon. There. I, you can't do that if you're here you can um you can walk out but then then you feel conspicuous or whatever where if you're at home and the facebook viewership goes from 27 to 26 nobody knows it's like you just dropped out so there's that vulnerability of just showing up to being with people physically but then also spiritually emotionally (laughs) mentally so all of this of course leads to a second question in the face of these and other threats, and, and there are other threats to this, so, you know, we, we could talk in terms of... of um, goodness, lots of different ways. You could talk in terms of uh, secular thinking or secular ideology to talk about threats from without. You can talk about uh, Christian nationalism as something from within. Uh, you can talk about, uh, you know, t- today's Twitter buzzwords, woke, CRT, whatever... Um, either, like depending on which Twitter feed you're reading, um, those terms are the hope of the church or the the death of the church, and these are church people having these very public disagreements about it. You go a different direction and talk about the abuse scandals in the church, the cover ups, the exposure of formerly uh, revered leaders uh, for some of the things that they did in secret and ways they and all all like these and many other, many other threats to the church. In the face of them, what gives people like us hope that the future will be any different? Um, now, you have to understand, I, if, if, you, if you don't know um, the organization I work for, that's perfectly fine. It's not a very big organization, but uh, Redeemer State of the City, is a church planting organization it's transdenominational it's connected with tim keller uh presbyterian pastor here in new york um so it has sort of a reformed vestige but it's a transdenominational network we're just trying to help churches get started matter of fact our our mission statement is something like we we exist to start and strengthen churches uh to um cultivate gospel movements in cities around the world like that's that's what we do okay so when you get it when, when when we end up at city of the city when we host a gathering of of ministers oftentimes they are church planters to use a different language they're entrepreneurs to use a different language they're apostolic okay Depends, like, how they want to define themselves. But that's the way that they, they view the world with this, through this optimistic lens. And they look at the challenges of the church, these threats, and they say, uh, with every challenge is an opportunity, right? And, and they would look at, uh, for all the threats facing us, they would look at what's going on and say, here's an opportunity for the church, like a generational opportunity for the church. And if I throw out a question like this one to that room, uh, I think some things would start emerging. Some answers would start emerging from that group of church planters. Say, well, if we're looking for a basis for hope for the future of the church, I mean, uh, look at the fact of the activism of the younger generation, millennials and Gen Z. I mean, they're like taking up the social justice banner. Like what an opportunity for us as the church to actually partner with non-theistic or atheistic or agnostic Gen Z or millennials and actually do the work of justice with them, but then explain to them that they actually don't have a reason for doing that work. But we do. Like if you believe in a, in a materialistic world without any deity, then justice doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. That's another conversation. But it does, there's, there's no basis for saying that every human being ought to be treated equally or with dignity. But you factor in the scriptures and the Imago Dei, and suddenly you've got all kinds of reason for activism and justice. And so, hey, this is an opportunity for us to capitalize on this and share the gospel, even through partnership with uh, non-Christians. Or uh, they might look at uh, the loneliness of this season and the longing for connection that people have, uh, Zoom fatigue and all of that, and say, well, this, this is an opportunity for us to reimagine what neighborhood communities can look like, uh, not just for Christians, but reimagine communities where non-believers are part of those communities and we have an opportunity to, to testify to the life and work of Jesus, or the rising interest in spirituality, which is noted particularly in Gen Z, which while it's challenging because it's, it can devolve into the you have your truth, I have my truth, it is opening up pathways to talk about God, or the new normal, right, that our lives the two-week pause isn't that funny to think back on like we all thought oh it's a two week pause and now it's two years and we're just still figuring out like what life is going to look like um everyone's been rethinking their life rhythms and their life goals and it creates opportunities to say well where does the church fit in that in your new vision of life and what we've experienced and gone through or they might just broadly speaking Think of missional creativity, like because of technology, because of connectedness, we have an opportunity right now to do something really amazing uh, in terms of starting non-traditional expressions of faith communities. So like those are the kinds of answers in the world where I work. I hear that kind of stuff all the time. And yet when I get to the end of that, I would say these are all good things, right? These are all opportunities. And I would agree that there are great opportunities for us, but ultimately none of these give us a solid basis for hope for the future of the church. Because anyone who's read anything in church history knows that we could have a golden opportunity presented before us as the church and completely botch it, completely mess it up. And uh, the church often has to, and different denominations, even individual churches have to like publicly say, we were wrong when we did X, Y, Z. So just because there's opportunity doesn't mean that we have hope for the future of the church. But I would not say that there is no basis for hope, not at all. But the basis of our hope is not in our imagination. It's not in our creativity. It's not in the next big thing, the next idea that's really going to change the way people think about God for the next hundred years. The basis of our hope for the future of the church is where it's always been. And you see it in a prayer that many of us say every Sunday. That is the prayer of humble access. I know we're not about to take communion, but I would invite you uh, to read or pray this prayer with me because this actually enters us into the basis of our hope, okay? So let's read or pray it together. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much to gather your
1: table, but you same Lord, is always mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord,
0: So to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. That last bit, in orange, there's our hope. There's our hope, that we might dwell in Jesus and that Jesus might dwell in us, not just individually, but in us as the people of God. That phraseology, you know, is not Thomas Cranmer's invention. The prayer is. He wrote the prayer. He put it in there back in 1551 or so. Or forty-seven. I don't remember which prayer book he put it in, but he, he's the one who wrote the prayer. But obviously, that language did not originate with him. It's rooted deeply in the New Testament scriptures. There's a lot of verses that we could look at um, to substantiate this, but I want to go with this one from Jesus's high priestly prayer in the seventeenth chapter of John's Gospel. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as uh, you have loved them, even as you have loved me. Now, what does that mean? That's, That's a profound prayer. Profound, first of all, because Jesus foresaw you sitting in this room. I don't just pray for the 11 who are asleep near me. I am praying for people in the uttermost parts of the earth on the other side of a sea and an ocean and a little island called Manhattan that no one's heard of yet where a couple thousand years from now they will gather to talk about me. I pray for them too. That's, that's wild, right? That's sick. But then what he's praying, the content of it, Father, I'm in you, you're in me. May they also be one, and maybe they be in us. I in them, and you in me. Like whoa, 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 wow. Now, there's lots of names that have been given to this doctrine. An Australian New Testament scholar notes in his book um, on this subject uh, that really there's no one term. Mutual indwelling is sometimes used, but it's like that, that's kind of a mouthful to say mutual indwelling. Like I'm in you, and you in me, and... Mutually, we're indwelling one another, right? Uh, But he he says, uh, single idea terms are not sufficiently broad to encapsulate all that Paul, and his his book focuses on the Apostle Paul, all that Paul envisions by our relatedness to Christ. And most likely, no single term will do justice to the theme. So he suggests that there are four ways that uh, Christians often talk about this doctrine. Uh, They'll use the phrase, union with Christ, that we've been brought into oneness with him. That's one way to talk about it. Um, In my theological formation, this is the one that was most regularly used with me, and you'll hear me probably use union with Christ language largely from here on out. It's not because I think it's more right than the other ones. It's because my formation, that was the one that we often talked in terms of. But there's also... Other ways of saying it, union Union feels a little static. Um, it, it's not bad. It, it expresses oneness, but it feels a little static. Participation in Christ is a, a way that other faith traditions will speak of this. That uh, the, if, if, if you're from a background where people talk about being the hands and feet of Christ, right? Anyone hear that phraseology? Yeah, uh, that, that's sort of a, it's, it's an expression of this. we participants in Christ. Um, the one I grew up with before my sort of formal theological formation is the third. I heard this all the time. Uh, participation, or I, I'm sorry, identification with Christ. I grew up in a Baptist church, and that was the one that, like, uh, but identification with, um, I always viewed as my work of identifying with Jesus. Like, I'm on his team. Right, See you at the poll or whatever. Um, I, I'm with Jesus. Uh, WWJD, that was more my era than see you at the pole. But, um, but the idea is not of our identifying with him, so much as his ident- identifying with us first. His incarnation, like he showed up here. He became one of us so that we might be one with him, identified with him. Uh, And then incorporation into Christ is a a fourth way. And I think all four of these terms are are trying to grasp this idea. they are different ways of saying, okay, Christ is in you right now. And you are in Christ right now. Campbell goes on to conclude, Virtually every element of Christ's work that is of interest to Paul is connected in some way to union with Christ. Perhaps the great example of this in the Apostle Paul is the beginning of Ephesians, where if you read it in the original language, it's, it's like a, an enormous run-on sentence. Our our English translators have put periods where Paul had no period. He just kept uh, motoring on. It's like, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. It's like the preacher that wouldn't shut up. Um, But it all starts with this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then throughout the rest of chapter 1 of Ephesians, throughout the whole book of Ephesians, but then all through Paul's letters, you have this phraseology, in him, with him, in Jesus, over and over and over again. And even in this opening hymn of praise in Ephesians 1, he's about to say, even just as God chose us in him. See, there's that language of Union, participation with, identification with, whatever language you want to use, of oneness with Jesus. And by virtue of that, we have been elected, chosen. What does that mean? Not going to debate it right now. But whatever it is, it came by virtue of our union with Jesus. Because we're in Jesus, we are elect. He goes on to say that because of our union with Jesus, we are predestined. Not going to fight that one either right now. Okay? He goes on to say, that because of our union with Jesus, we are adopted as sons and daughters. Our ability to call God our Father is connected to the fact that you are one with the capital S Son of God. And you are so vitally connected to Jesus that he invites you to say, our Father. There's only one person, have you ever thought about this? There's only one person In all the universe, in all of history, or however big I can make this, there's only one person ever who has the right inherently to call God Father, and that is the Son, the Son of God. He's the only one who inherently has that right. You know what participation with Jesus means? It means after the resurrection, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Now I am going to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. You now have the right to be called children of God. You and I have that right by virtue of our connection to Jesus. Everything, everything comes in union with him. It is the great blessing of the gospel. Which, of course, forces us to ask the question, so what is it? The mid-20th century theologian John Murray put it this way. Murray is a Reformed writer. One of the things I love about Reformed authors is they try to define things as precisely as possible. Sometimes it gets them in trouble, but that's one of the things I love about it. They're trying to, like, get on paper. What does this mean? And here's the great John Murray. says, here we have union, which we are Unable to define specifically. That had to have bugged him. I'm just guessing. That had to have bugged him to have to admit that. Like, how do we define this? But it is union of an intensely spiritual character, consonant with the nature and work of the Holy Spirit, so that, in a real way, surpassing our power of analysis, Christ dwells in his people, and his people dwell in him. You hear the prayer of humble access right there? That we prayed a moment ago? Or to put it a little more simply, there's a more recent book on this by Rankin Wilborn who writes, Union with Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. But you might still be like, so what does that mean? Right, like, huh? So here, here's, here's the beauty of, here's another beautiful thing that God has done for us. The New Testament is not a theology textbook, as much as I might have loved for it to be, have been one. Stories, Gospels, it's letters, it's an apocalypse. And in the New Testament, and like I say, this idea of our union with Jesus, our partnership with Jesus, is just right through the New Testament. Throughout the whole thing, God gives us pictures of what this looks like, images, metaphors. Can you think of any images from the New Testament that describe our relationship, our relatedness to Jesus? Vine and the branches. Ah, vine and the branches, right? I am the vine, you're the branches. John chapter 15. What, else? what other ones come to mind? A mother, chicken, a hen and her yes, a mother hen and her chicks. Very good in the Gospels. Marriage, husband and wife, Ephesians 5. Excellent. I know. Shepherd and sheep. Excellent. Any particular passage comes to mind? Yep, John 10. Very good. That's what, that's what I thought of. But, I mean, there's John 10, Psalm 23, um, Ezekiel. Somewhere in the middle? 30, I want to say 30 something. What other ones? There are a few other ones. What images describe our relatedness to Jesus? We've got vine and branches, husband, and wife, mother, hen, and chicks. Teacher student, Teacher student, yep, the whole disciple relationship, absolutely. shepherd and sheep yes the head and body that's another one good that's 1 Corinthians 12 is kind of the big one there although there's other places he uses that imagery I've got one more on my list and this is a a difficult one this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3 the image of a foundation and a building I had foundation and a building so here's what I want to do um we're going to take, what time is it? 4 or 35. We're going to take five minutes. We're going to break up into groups. Okay? Let's see. You said, which, which one did you say? Vine and, vine and branches. Okay, so there's going to be a group here talking vine and branches. Okay? Hen and chicks. Or, what was the other one you mentioned? Which, which do you want to do? Okay, hen and chicks. Back there, there was shepherd and sheep. There's a group there. You mentioned which one? Head and body. So we're going to form a group of head and body there. And then husband wife. Husband wife. Why don't we make a group right here in the middle? Or husband wife. Okay. So I want you to get into the groups. And again, if you want, I can throw out the scripture passages if you want to like pull it up on your phones or whatever. But two questions I want you to consider. One, what does this image tell us about our relatedness to Jesus? Actually, let me do this. See if you can see this. Nope, that didn't work. Oh, well, sorry, I forgot to make a slide for this one. What does the image tell us or how does the image describe our relatedness to Jesus? And then secondly, how does that image give us hope for the future of the church? Okay, Is that clear? What does it? How does it describe our relationship, and how does it inspire hope for the future? Clear as mud. Let's take five minutes. If you want a specific passage, just shout and I'll send you one, or just Google it. Your five minutes are about halfway up. So if you haven't moved to the second question yet, how does that image offer hope for the future of a church? Go ahead and migrate to the second question. One more minute. All right, let's go ahead and uh, reconvene. I'd love to hear from you. If you could designate a spokesperson. Um, So how how does that image uh, flesh out what it means to be related to Jesus and what hope does that Give us for the future of the church, okay? So let's start right here. If you could remind us what your image is again and then launch into it. So who wants to... Was, was everyone able to hear that? Okay, fantastic. Sorry. Uh, vine and branches. He's the stronger. We're the weaker. His energy flows into us. It survives and thrives even in drought and dryness because the roots go deep. And, even, and as far as the hope, even amidst threats, even amidst churches closing... Um, the image gives pruning and pruning means there's going to be more fruitfulness and more life is that
1: yes.
0: yeah that's really helpful thank you let's move here maybe this time if you would stand and kind of face the majority of people whoever's yes
1: awesome Stuff. They're great, um, and they great outlines to have uh, over great programs of a to put things together, but ultimately it's the resurrection, ultimately it's what Jesus has done for us. Um, that gives us the hope, and we can't mess that up.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you.
2: So we had the, the chicken and the hands. Um, and so in that verse, it's describing Jesus' is calling out uh, to Jerusalem. Um, and we were just about how wonderful it is that it's about relationship, it's about what, what Jesus mm-hmm. has done, and not about us trying to get ourselves to be ready for Him. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, He's calling out for us, and we simply just have to to say, Please take it and, and do what we can with it. Yeah. So,
0: Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Let's go back that way.
3: So, the, so the right to our, our image.
0: Yeah. yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking of that Ephesians 4 passage where, where it says um, that we might grow up into the head. And you know, at times you could think like that's kind of a grotesque image, like this is fully mature head with this tiny little body. Yeah. Um, but I remember, you know, we have we have a lot of kids. When we moved here, we had a, a friend who was our au pair and she was just out of college uh, living with us, helping with our older kids while Kimberly was busy having more kids. Um, and we, we had a newborn. It must've been, uh, it was either a Shrey or a Brooks, but one day, uh, wh- whichever baby it was, it must've been about two or three months old. And Kimberly said, um, I think it's kind of funny the, 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 the weird proportions of a baby's body. And, um, Hannah was like, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, take a look. And she, she grabbed whatever, ba- one of our baby's hands and lifted it up next to its head, and their arm was the same length as their head, so it's like this, and Hannah was like, Ugh. <laughs> she just never noticed that before, it's hilarious. But, you know, that image, right, you know, that, um, that it, it, it's actually not grotesque, right, it's perfectly normal, but that, that's, and that gives us hope for the future, because God is the one who's causing it to grow. And, and our plans and ideas flow from the head, not trying to dictate to the head, this is what I want to do. Which first Corinthians get answered. I'm sorry. Over here. Last group. Last group. beautiful uh thank you those are rich reflections um do you see how the images help us right like we could theologize this to death and try to get all the right words and all of this and then it's like here's a picture talk about that it's like oh i get it but like who would have ever thought to have a head and body and a shepherd and sheep image and a chicken and chick, uh, hen with chickens. Like whoever would have like put all of those and said, they're all describing the same thing. That's how multifaceted this is. So when we pray this prayer that he may dwell in us and we may dwell in him, it's very simple to say, but do you see just how it touches everything? And that's why, that's why I, I put this, it, it means everything. It, it is the central blessing of the gospel the central blessing of the gospel is that I'm one with Jesus and in Jesus, I have everything. Everything God promised. And Campbell's List, this is the fuller quotation. I gave you a short version of it earlier. I mean, you look at that list, all of it comes by connection to Jesus. And when you dig into it, you realize that it rests on this amazing, it rests on the triunity of God, right? Right. It rests on the incarnation of Jesus. Like our oneness with God, which many would say like that's the aim of all religion in the world, is to be one with God, to be one with the divine, right? How does it happen? It happens by the divine becoming one of us. And apart from it, we can never build a bridge that far. But we don't have to, because he came to us. And now by baptism of the Spirit, which is the first... Corinthians 12 thing. We're not going to debate what that means today. Not the point of it. But clearly from what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, the Spirit's work, the Spirit that was sent to us has made all of this reality. Okay? And it's not a static union. Okay? Um, well, it can be, I guess. To go back to the marriage analogy. You can have a marriage license, say, see, I'm married, and have a terrible marriage. Right? So, but, so this is not just something that's static. There's a dynamism to it, even though it rests on the new covenant. So as, as I've reflected on this, just trying to like, I was standing outside praying before the session, thinking, okay, Lord, I'm going to try to describe a big blob of truth. Like, I hope it be helpful, right? Um, but in order to try to give us some handles as I've thought about this, I think our union with Christ, the, the, the union, the, 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 the incorporation that we share in Christ propels us into the future. And I think it does it in four different ways, just like, kind of in a summarizing way. Okay? Uh, it propels us upward in a mystical way. This relationship with God, this sense of the transcendence, um, those moments of, of sensing nearness to God. And you heard it in the shepherd and sheep analogy. And you, you think about this, the Ezekiel passage. Uh, is it Ezekiel where he holds the sheep close to his heart, right? And there are these moments, whether in worship or sitting on a beach or in the middle of chaos, where we are caught up in the transcendence of God. Um, and we sing it in the hymn, or The Church is One Foundation, that. We have mystic sweet communion. Well, actually, she on earth hath union with God, the three in one. There it is. And mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. And if you ever wonder, like, when do I ever have sweet communion with dead people? Is that what we're saying? Isn't that kind of weird? Yes, most of our hymns are weird, if you've ever noticed, right? Like, all of them have weird stuff in it. Do you know when you have mystic sweet communion with those who've gone before? As an example? (coughs) when you sing that hymn because the person who wrote that hymn is dead and yet mystically you have sweet communion with that hymn writer because you're singing their song isn't that amazing? it's remarkable Um, but but it doesn't just push upward it pushes outward it pushes outward Uh, on the one hand it pushes us into this relational space where we build community with other people who are just as messed up as we are and yet we put up with each other and we deal with it because we're one in Jesus. But then it also pushes us towards service. It pushes us on mission to care about those who don't know Jesus, to care about those who are hungry, to care about issues of justice. It pushes us outward. That's, that's our union with Jesus propelling us in these directions, right? We're not creating these things. This is, this is the, the, the great fallacy of our secular age is to think that this community thing, we just need it, so we're just going to make it. Or social justice, we're just going to make it happen, right? You can't, you can't get that without Jesus pushing us out there. We're just too messed up, we're too broken, we're not going to get there. But it also pushes us to, to dig our roots deeply into this truth. Uh, into this covenant, to understand better, like, what has Jesus done for us? So it does teach us to study and to care about things like doctrine or theology, which, you know, I know that's not everyone's cup of tea. But, that, but it, 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 to understand and to be able to explain to others the reason for the hope that lies within us requires us to ask really big, hard questions. So, um, and out of that, out of that flow these ideas, right? See, if you spend your life chasing the next big idea of what's going to save the church, you're just going to wear yourself out. It might work, it might not work, I don't know. But if you start with your union in Jesus, connection to the head, the growth that he's... It, it likely will lead to creative ideas. Like I, I was in Janet's session earlier today where she talked about how they just created a, a vacation Bible school because there are kids who are in a... In uh, apartment buildings with no air conditioning for 11 hours a day watching television. So I'm like, well, we'll just do VBS. And their one-week VBS turned into a 10-week VBS. She's like, we didn't know what we were doing. What is that? That's Jesus propelling us on mission. Like, I don't know if it's going to work. It probably won't. Maybe it won't. That's okay. The Spirit of God is at work. The Spirit of God is at work. Um, so um, I am curious when it comes to this one. <laughs> Um, do I have time. No. Nah. Here, here's, here's the takeaway for you. Um, in your own church, as you look at those four things, wh- where do you see yourself, wh- where is your church particularly strong? I mean, honestly, no church is perfect. But which one of those four do you think to yourself, yeah, you know, we're really good at mission. Like we do lots of stuff outside the four walls of our building or whatever. But then the other question I would ask you is where do you hear the spirit of Jesus in you saying, I want to propel you this way? It might be into your strength. It might be into a weakness, right? And let let that drive your creativity within your own church as we share the hope of Christ with the world. Okay. I'll stick around for some questions. It's, it's five o'clock, um, so we'll wrap up. But if, if you have any questions, uh, I'll be up here for a few minutes before I go to the dance.
1: All right, thank you.